Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Daily Dialectic with me, Ted Matrakis, the podcast where we talk about philosophy, history, culture, politics, social theory, and so on in a unique way, I like to think. So last time I talked about Socrates, gave my interpretation of him, and this time I want to talk about Jesus, who is often compared to Socrates. They're kind of like the two most famous figures in history who were killed for being truth-tellers by a society that didn't understand them or appreciate them. They're sometimes called the first two victims of cancel culture. But despite being very similar in this way, they're in many ways fundamentally opposites. And they were killed for opposite reasons. Jesus was killed because he was silent, because he wouldn't speak on his own behalf. He wouldn't answer the charges against him. He wouldn't explain himself. Socrates was killed because he wouldn't shut the fuck up. He was killed for talking too much. And so which death is a better death? Which death is more noble? A death for speech or a death for silence? And I think clearly the death of Jesus is more noble, which is why his death is not a real death. It's not a final death. It's viewed as a stepping stone to resurrection and eternal life and so on, while Socrates just sort of dies. So they were both miracle workers in a way, but in opposite ways. Jesus worked physical miracles, healing the sick, walking on water, turning a handful of bread and fish into enough to feed a ton of people, and so on. Socrates was a miracle worker, but with his words, his intellect, his dialectical method. No one had ever seen anything like what Socrates did before. No one had ever really spoken like that. So it was very shocking to people. Jesus and Socrates also both used indirect communication. Socrates was constantly ironic, saying the opposite of what he really means. And Jesus mostly spoke in parables to the majority of people. To his close disciples and followers, he would speak in plain language, but mostly it was parables. And Jesus had to be begged to do his miracles. He had to be asked. He did them sort of with hesitation. Socrates, on the other hand, just went around doing them. People didn't want his miracles necessarily. He kind of forced them on people. His dialectics, his philosophy, he had to warm people up to it. He would start with pleasantries and get their guard down, like, you know, show that he's just a regular guy. And then once they're sort of chatting pleasantly, Socrates moves on to the dialectics and sort of traps people. Jesus, on the other hand, people had to ask him for his miracles. People wanted his miracles desperately. So he had to be secretive, selective, and careful. He was always hiding and trying to make sure that word didn't get out about his miracles or about who he was, because then he would be overwhelmed. Socrates, on the other hand, was doing his miracles, his dialectics in the marketplace in front of all kinds of people all the time. Socrates performed his miracles on the sophists, the teachers of speaking skills. So I talked about that last time. He claimed to be helping them cure their sick souls, but they weren't really sick. They were teaching common sense speaking skills to middle-class artisans and craftsmen. Socrates was a sick one. He spread his sickness while claiming to be healing the sick souls of others. He infected them with his confusion and his strange way of thinking and talking his confusing barrage of words. Nobody's really improved after Socrates talks to them, but he acts like they are. He ruins and destroys perfectly fine things and then basically says you're welcome. Jesus, on the other hand, was curing people who really were sick, people who couldn't walk, who were paralyzed, who had you know, psychological problems like schizophrenia. It's described as being possessed by demons, thrashing around and foaming at the mouth and so on. And Jesus heals them of that. And he often cured people who were deaf and dumb, people who couldn't hear or talk. Jesus gave people the power to speak. Socrates, 
on the other hand, by using his confusing dialectic, his maze of words, took people's power to speak away from them. He left people dumbfounded and confused. He spoke so much and in such a strange way that words themselves lost their meaning. Poisoning words themselves. This is one of the worst crimes that Nietzsche identifies in Thus Spoke Zarathustra in the section on the rabble. They have poisoned even words, he says. And Nietzsche always calls Socrates rabble. So I think it's fair to say that Socrates poisons words. Words should free us, elevate us. But with Socrates, words weigh us down. They confuse us, attack our common sense. Everything is spun around on its head. With Jesus, on the other hand, words are given their value and meaning back. He protects his word. He becomes the word. He is often called the word of God. He is the word itself becoming material, becoming actual, becoming man. Socrates, on the other hand, takes words and makes them immaterial, ideal, unactual. So what Jesus did and what Socrates did were equally unique and strange and unseen in history before. But Socrates did it his whole life to everyone he met indiscriminately and didn't try to hide it really. Jesus would only do it in certain circumstances and he always tried to keep it a secret. After performing miracles, Jesus would tell the people not to tell anyone else because he knew that what he had was valuable and that if too many people found out, it would be destroyed. What is of most value must never be too exposed. Jesus knew this. Socrates didn't. So Jesus did his miracles to help people. Socrates used his miracle power of dialectics and argument to try to destroy his enemies. Jesus spent time helping people with his miracles, and yet still he chose to die. Why? Because I think he decided human beings weren't worth it. They weren't worth helping. This is based on my reading of the Gospel of Mark, which is going, what I'm going to be drawing from here. Jesus in the Gospel of Mark is the least divine of any of the Jesuses in the four Gospels. He's the most silent, the most contemptuous of human beings, really, the most materialist, and so the most revolutionary. Because what is most materialist is always what is most revolutionary. And so I think for those reasons, the Jesus of Mark is by far the most interesting. The most consistent thing about the Jesus of Mark, in my view, is Jesus's disappointment in human beings. Even as he came to expect little of them, he was still disappointed constantly. As the line goes, for God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son to save humanity. But this doesn't mean that Jesus loved humanity. I think Jesus hated humanity. He was doing a job for his dad and it sucked. It's not a job he signed up for or wanted. Jesus knew that his father didn't really care about him, which is why he sent him down to earth to try to save humanity. But the lesson of Jesus is that humanity isn't worth saving. That's why he chooses to die. Jesus tried to save humanity, but they proved that they weren't worth it. So he gave up and said, fuck it, I want to die. And I don't think God really loved the world either. If he did, he would have done more than send his angsty son to earth with no instructions as their only hope for salvation. It seems more like God was just entertaining himself, again, which is really all he does. In the Old Testament, of course, God uses people as pawns in his sick game, telling Abraham to kill his son Isaac just for shits and giggles and so on. But this is the most cruel form of entertainment because he was using his own son as a pawn in his sick game. Not only does God send his son down to earth to save human beings who are beyond all saving, but he abandons his son as well. He forsakes him. So Jesus really meant nothing to God, just as Jesus means nothing to human beings. And so I think no one was ever so lonely as Jesus. Neither God nor man, something in between, and being in between, living in uncertainty, is the worst state of existence imaginable. So Jesus was baptized <clears throat> at age 31. He spends a quick two years basically doing miracles and preaching parables, and then he chooses to die at age 33. 
So how did he spend his life before being baptized at age 31? Nobody really knows. But most likely he didn't do too much of note. Then he was consumed with his mission and his ministry and preaching for a few years. But he could only keep it up for a couple of years. And then he decided to cash out. So he found his calling, his mission in life. And we often think that finding your calling means you'll do it for decades and decades into your old age. But that's not the case. If it's your real calling, you might only be able to do it for a few years because you give yourself to the world completely. That's what a calling is. And the world only knows how to misinterpret you and destroy you. I think that's the lesson of Jesus. So finding a true calling isn't a great thing. It's the quickest way to destroy yourself. It isn't salvation or a blessing or anything we should want. I think this is another lesson of Jesus. And so Jesus only spent two years of intense engagement with humanity, traveling around, meeting all kinds of people. And that was enough for him to make him realize that human beings weren't worth it at all. So Jesus and Socrates both chose to die, but for different reasons. Jesus wanted to die because he couldn't stand being around human beings anymore. They were too awful. They disappointed him too much. They weren't worth it. Socrates wanted to die because he couldn't stand himself anymore. He was too awful. He was disgusted with himself. That's the difference. So if you spend your time and use your powers helping others as Jesus did, you will want to die because you'll realize that people aren't worth helping. But if you spend your time and powers hurting people, as Socrates basically did, you will also want to die because you'll end up hating yourself. Although notice that Jesus chose to die at age 33 and Socrates chose to die at age 71. That's a big difference. So hurting others, as Socrates did, is far more sustainable than helping others. Hating yourself because you hurt others is far more sustainable than hating others because you help them and are disappointed by them. It seems to me that they represent the two possibilities for humanity in this way and for reaching our death. You will either want to die from disappointment in others, as Jesus did, or in disappointment in yourself, as Socrates did. And so Socrates was very open, carrying all his ideas exposed at all times, offering them to everyone, rich or poor, healthy or sick, young or old. Jesus, on the other hand, used parables because he didn't trust most people with his truths. Only the people who earned his trust could get his real teachings, where he explained everything. So he had a set of ideas and thoughts and explanations for the general public, and then he had his more clear thoughts and his real thoughts, his real truths for his inner circle. But Socrates just said everything to everyone all the time. Jesus was very closed. He used parables for the general public to conceal his true meaning because he knew that his real meaning, uh, people didn't deserve it and they wouldn't understand it. So he had to use parables to try to indirectly get it across. With his trusted disciples, he revealed what he really meant and thought. Perhaps because Jesus had real knowledge and real authority and Socrates had nothing. If you have nothing, then why not share it with everyone as Socrates did? But if you have something valuable, something real as Jesus did, then you will want to be careful about how you reveal it and who you share it with. If you have nothing inside you like Socrates had nothing inside of him, then you'll want to share it with everyone. Spreading nothingness around is the way to make yourself feel like your nothingness is something. If you hold on to your nothingness, you'll be faced with it for what it is. If you constantly share it, you can convince yourself that it's something. Jesus, on the other hand, knew he had something. He knew he had truth, so he had no reason to share it. What gets shared is often of the least value. And we certainly see this with social media, millions of people sharing things all the time, but almost none of it is really worth sharing. But the act of sharing is a way that people convince themselves that what they have to share is worthwhile. So when Jesus started his ministry and preaching, the first thing he did was get two disciples. 
His first two disciples were Simon and his brother Andrew, who he saw on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. They were fishing and he tells them, come with me and I will make you fishers of men. And so they immediately follow him. And Jesus never really has to convince anyone of anything. He is powerful enough just with his presence and basic simple words, just saying what's most essential to be able to influence people. Socrates, on the other hand, always had to convince everyone of everything because he himself had no presence or inner authority, really. He was constantly trying to prove himself. And what has constantly to have itself proven, as Nietzsche said, is of but little value. Real value speaks for itself. Socrates is the opposite of anything that speaks for itself. Socrates represents all the noise that prevents what is most essential from speaking its own truth. Jesus represents the reemergence of the power of silence against the noise of the world to allow what is essential to be heard once again. Jesus said he will offer Andrew and Simon something. He offers to turn them into fishers of men. He has knowledge and he has things that he can teach them. Socrates, on the other hand, says flat out that you can't teach anybody anything. And so if you have something real to offer, as Jesus did, you have to be more secretive as he was. Perhaps this is why Jesus was never ironic, but Socrates was always ironic because Socrates had nothing to teach, but he had to make that nothing seem like something. And irony can do that. But Jesus had a lot to teach and he used parables or strange little stories, almost riddles to get his meaning across because he had so much to teach that he almost didn't want to be understood too easily or by too many people or by the wrong kinds of people. Socrates used irony to create the impression of learning and knowledge when there really wasn't any learning and knowledge going on. Jesus used parables to decrease the amount of learning and knowledge going on to make it seem like things weren't really being understood when they actually were. Socrates creates the illusion of knowledge to hide his lack of knowledge. Jesus creates the illusion of a lack of knowledge to hide his real knowledge. That's another difference between them. So one of the biggest similarities between Jesus and Socrates is in their relation to the other teachers around at that time. So for Socrates, his rivals, his enemies were the sophists, who I talked about last time. They were a group of educators who would teach people rhetoric and speaking skills and so on. For Jesus, the other teachers that he was... Uh, working against are sometimes called the doctors of the law or the Pharisees. And they strictly observed the laws and had a lot of sort of technical knowledge, but they were missing that special something that Jesus had, an inner authority. Early on in the gospel of Mark, it says the people were astounded at his teaching for unlike the doctors of the law, he taught with a note of authority. He was speaking for himself from a place of real knowledge, not a place of just sort of regurgitating the letter of the law, like the Pharisees or the doctors of the law would. And Jesus didn't hide his authority. He couldn't really hide his authority. What's real can't be hidden, but it must be hidden in this awful world. And that's another, you know, lesson of Jesus and one of the sources of his misery. And I think that was the source of his misery and why he could only stand it for two years before choosing to die. Socrates constantly encourages words. He wants to get big, long, precise definitions out of the sophists that he argues with. Whenever they talk, it's never quite enough for him. So Socrates will ask a sophist for a definition of truth or beauty or justice, and the sophist will give Socrates a definition, but it's never enough. And Socrates always wants more words. And so Socrates is the enemy of silence or quiet. He always wants more words, more talk. And this was precisely what was new in the Greek world that Socrates represented. It went against the tradition of what was Greek. And this is in large part Nietzsche's critique of Socrates and what he represents, that the traditional tragic wisdom of the Greeks was deeper than words and recognize the limits of rationality and the fundamentally tragic nature of existence. What Socrates represents is the belief that rationality can penetrate the nature of being itself. 
and by doing so, cure it and fix it. That there is a sickness in the soul of being and in the soul of all people that can be cured by enough questioning, by enough reason, by enough words. This is Socratism. Socratism is anti-Greek, according to Nietzsche. The Greeks, when they were greatest, the Homeric Greeks of Homer, the age of heroes and the tragic age of Aeschylus and Sophocles and all of that, those guys realized that rationality and words can't penetrate the essence of being. They can't cure being or fix being. And so Socrates is very optimistic in this way. He thinks that with enough reason and talking, we can cure the fundamental problem of existence. The Greeks before Socrates, when they were strongest, embraced the power of silence and a kind of tragic pessimism. And I think Jesus represents a return to this, a return to silence and a return to a kind of pessimism. So Jesus uses silence to cure people. The first miracle he performs is in a synagogue where a man is possessed by an unclean spirit. The man shrieks, it says. So very noisy, very loud. So that's a sign of his possession and how his spirit is unclean if you're shrieking, if you're being too noisy. And so the man says, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Jesus rebuked him. Be silent, he said, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit threw the man into convulsions and with a loud cry left him. They were all dumbfounded and began to ask one another, what is this, a new kind of teaching? He speaks with authority when he gives orders. Even the unclean listen, end quote. And so Jesus is using the power of silence and quiet. And this can be listened to on a much deeper level. This is communication that's totally opposite of Socrates. Socrates is all noise, all dialectics. And so you can't really hear it. If you read the dialogues of Plato where Socrates does his dialectics, you're going around in circles and you get a headache. And at the end of it, you're not really sure what you've learned, if anything. So all of that sound and fury of Socrates and the dialectic, it signifies nothing which is what Socrates is. He's nothingness incarnate. And this masks the fact that he, ha that he has no authority and nothing to teach. But Jesus says more with his silence than Socrates says with all of his endless feast of words. It's the power of silence that Jesus represents. This is what is most revolutionary about him. And so after this first miracle at the synagogue, Jesus goes directly to the house of his two followers, Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law is there and she's ill in bed with a fever. Jesus simply takes her by the hand and helps her to her feet. The fever left her and then she waited upon them. She cooked for them at the house and so on. And so once Jesus, uh, once again, Jesus doesn't say anything. He just reaches out and touches her and lifts her up. <clears throat> Jesus doesn't need words for his miracles, whereas Socrates needs so many words because he has no real miracles. At Simon's house, shortly after this, a crowd grows for Jesus. Quote, that evening, his followers brought all who were ill or possessed by devils, and the whole town was there gathered at the door. Jesus healed many who suffered from various diseases and drove out many devils. He would not let the devil speak because they knew who he was, end quote. So he's using the power of silence again here. Socrates would have had a long conversation with the devils. Jesus knows that nothing good can come from listening to devils. And so shortly after this, Jesus performs one of his most famous miracles, the cleansing of a leper who knelt before him, begging for his help. And again, the contrast with Socrates here is obvious. Nobody begged Socrates for his help. He sort of pushed his dialectics onto people because they knew it was a trap largely. And so the sophists that Socrates talks to, they're always sort of uneasy when he engages them because they know that he's trying to trap them. Whereas with Jesus, people run up to him and they want his help. 
And Socrates, who claimed to heal the sickness in people's souls, did not offer real material help. All he offered was confusion. Jesus, on the other hand, offers material miracles. Healthcare. He cures real diseases in people's bodies. Socrates, so he's a materialist in that way. Socrates wants us to forget about our bodies and focus on our souls. That's the main point of his apology, where he defends his conduct and says, I've gone around my whole life getting people to, to ignore their bodies and focus on their souls. But Jesus is more focused on helping people with bodily issues. So he's, again, much more of a materialist than Socrates is. And materialism is always more revolutionary than the idealism that Socrates uses. And so the leper says to Jesus, if only you will, you can cleanse me. And Jesus stretches out his hand, touches the leper and says, indeed, I will be clean again. And so it's all about will, the power of will. That's all it takes. And will isn't really about words. Will is deeper than words. Will is about silence. It's about something inside that can't be spoken. And as soon as it's spoken, it stops being will and loses its power. So Jesus's power comes from his will. And so after touching the leper, the leper is immediately cured. And Jesus dismisses him with a stern warning. He says, be sure you say nothing to anybody. But the man went out and made the whole story public. He spread it far and wide until Jesus could no longer show himself in any town, but stayed outside in the open country. And so this was one of Jesus's first major miracles. And the man immediately betrayed him. And it basically ruins Jesus's life from then on because he can't live in any town because everyone wants a piece of him. His name's out there. So he has to live in the open country like an animal, basically. And so he never really has any peace from that moment on because he healed that leper who then told everyone. And so Jesus probably regrets healing him because it fucked everything up. And so right at the beginning of his two years of ministry, Jesus basically learns that it's a mistake to help human beings because they don't deserve it. Because even if you give them everything, everything they want, like Jesus gave this leper, they still won't care enough about you to do what you ask of them, which is one simple thing. Jesus saved this guy from his horrible suffering, leprosy, the worst fate that you can have just about. And he asked for only one thing in return, which was silence. And this man couldn't even do that. Silence should be the easiest thing. It requires nothing really. But even this is too much to expect from human beings. And it must have made Jesus so sad. So how could he be optimistic? Socrates was optimistic because he was full of shit. He didn't really see the world as it was. Jesus did. So that's why he wasn't optimistic. A few days later, Jesus briefly, briefly returns to a town and a crowd collects at the door of the home he's staying at. And a man was brought in who was paralyzed, but they couldn't get the man in through the front door because the crowd was too big. So they opened the roof and lowered him down on a stretcher. They made like a pulley thing. And Jesus saw their faith and how hard they worked to get the man inside the house in this sort of creative way. And the way it's written in the gospel of Mark, this is what makes Jesus to agree to heal the paralyzed man that they showed this kind of initiative. So he's not necessarily going to do it for free. They had to earn it and they did. So Jesus says, my son, your sins are forgiven. And of course, the paralyzed man isn't paralyzed anymore. And that's all it takes. But there were some lawyers around Jesus's enemies who saw this go down and they thought to themselves, why does the fellow Jesus talk like that? This is blasphemy. Who but God alone can forgive sins? Jesus knew in his own mind that this is what they were thinking. He's able to hear in a way that other people can't because he's using the power of silence. If you're constantly engulfed in this world of words and reason and noise and constant talking, then you can't hear what's most essential. And Jesus can hear people's thoughts because he's so silent. So he can hear their thoughts in their heads because he can hear even the quietest, quietest things, such as the thoughts of others. And Jesus basically says to the lawyers, why would I bother explaining to you that I have the right to heal people and forgive sins since you will never believe me? 
It's easier just to do the actual thing and speak to people will to will, two wills reaching out to each other, to heal them and move on, rather than wasting time trying to explain or convince people like the lawyers who don't have ears to hear. So Jesus never, ever tries to explain things to people who he doesn't think will listen. Whereas Socrates says everything to everyone all the time. Key difference. Okay, moving ahead to chapter four of the Gospel of Mark. It's called the parable of the sower. And in this parable, Jesus basically breaks mankind down into four categories. And three of the categories are very negative about mankind. There's only one of the categories that uh, portrays mankind in a positive light. So he thinks that basically three out of four human beings are not worth talking to or engaging with at all. And I think that's probably true in my experience. Okay, the parable of the sower. So like a sower of a seed, S-O-W-E-R. And so the seed is the word, the word of God, his real knowledge, the authority that Jesus has, and that the doctors of the law and the Pharisees are jealous of, the truth of the will contained in his word. And this is what gives him his power to heal people directly, will to will. So when Jesus speaks, he's speaking will to will, sort of beyond words. The power of silence that he uses to make his miracles. But his seed is not for everyone. People are unworthy of it for the most part. And so the first category he uses is that some people are like a footpath. The seed, his word, doesn't take hold at all there because birds carry it away. It immediately gets lost in the hustle and bustle of the world. These people you shouldn't bother talking to at all because they won't hear anything. The words don't register or land with them at all. It just sort of drifts away. And this is probably most people. The next group of people he compares to rocky ground with little soil. And the seed sprouts quickly because it has no depth of earth. So the truth of his word is not really understood. People claim to understand it. They're like, oh, yeah, 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 I get it. It takes hold quickly, but in a deformed, grotesque way. And as, as it grows, it quickly gets scorched by the sun and dies because it doesn't grow correctly. So if people are, uh, if they think they understand too quickly, that's this category, rocky ground. So it's better than the footpath because they're at least making some kind of effort to hear it, but they're not hearing it in a deep or real or true way. And so the next group of people he compares to thistles or thorns. So when the seed, his word, his truth drops among thistles or thorns, it gets choked to death and has no chance because people are only listening so that they can sort of disagree with it. They're not giving it any sort of oxygen or any space to grow. So those are the three ways that your words can be misunderstood by the majority of people. So the footpath either dropped and then immediately carried away. So it makes no impact at all. So you shouldn't have even bothered or your words take root in rocky ground in a very superficial way and they vanish almost immediately. Or people who are actively hostile to any truth or any words, these are the thistles and the thorns and they'll strangle it and kill it. So the last category is what he calls good soil. And these are the people that you should talk to and that can hear you. Because your word, your seed can only take hold and grow into fruit with good soil. So it's not rocky, it's not this casual footpath, and it's not thorns. So I just explained this parable much more clearly than Jesus does. Um, but the sec- so it's, it's, this is considered sort of an obscure parable, as most of Jesus's parables are. Uh, but this one's pretty complex. And so the section right after this parable says, when, when Jesus was alone, the 12 disciples questioned him about the parable. And Jesus replied, to you, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given. But to those who are outside, everything comes by way of parables. So his real truth is reserved for those who deserve it his trusted disciples. 
Everyone else has to try to figure it out through parables. So he's, as always, protecting his truth. And again, this is one of the real uh, messages of Jesus. And so with the masses, he never speaks in anything but parables. And with random people who he is just healing, he says almost nothing. He just sort of touches them and says, rise, you're cured. So very low effort <laughs> with most people. Because he was doing a job that his dad sent them sent him to do and he didn't really want to do it. Because his customers, human beings, were ungrateful pieces of shit. But privately to his disciples, he explains everything because he knows that they have ears to hear it. And so you shouldn't carry everything exposed. You shouldn't share everything with everyone. This is the lesson of Jesus. And again, this is the exact opposite of Socrates, who had all of his reasons exposed all the time, and he would talk to any person about anything. Okay, later on in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus delivers a message to some people and says, listen to me, all of you, and understand this. Nothing that goes into a man from outside can defile him. No, it is the things that come out of him that defile a man. End quote. And so this is, again, a warning to be careful about what we say and who we say it to. It's always about protecting the word that you have inside of you. And this is why he's always so careful with his words and who he says what to. So listening to bad things can't hurt you. Nothing that comes from outside can hurt you. Hearing bad words can't hurt you. Sharing things with bad people, on the other hand, can. And so silence and quiet, choosing who you say what to and when, is how you build power and protect yourself. And here again, there's a difference with Socrates. One of Socrates' problems with the sophists is that they go around seeming to make the worse argument the better, meaning they put bad ideas into people's heads. And Socrates thinks that hearing the wrong things can poison your soul. But Jesus thinks that saying the wrong things to the wrong people is what hurts your soul. So Jesus is not really about charity or generosity really at all. Just giving things to people willy-nilly and indiscriminately is not what Jesus was about. A little later in the Gospel of Mark, there's a section called A Deaf and Dumb Man Healed, a man who couldn't hear and couldn't speak. And some people brought this man to Jesus. And Jesus takes the man aside, away from the crowd, and puts his fingers into his ears and touches the man's tongue, looks up to heaven and says, be opened. And that's all it takes. The man's ears are opened and his tongue is healed so he can hear and speak again. And what does Jesus do immediately after this? Of course, he forbids them to tell anyone, as always. But the more he forbade them, the more they published it. And so I think this is the torment of Jesus, is that he was put on earth to do these miracles. And all he wants from people in return is for them not to tell anyone. But all they ever do is tell everyone all the time. So every time he does what he's born to do, he regrets it. I can't think of a more pure description of hell than that, that he has to do what he's sent here to do, even though he knows whenever he does it, it will always go wrong. But yet, that's all he can do. Which is why he wanted to die. <laughs> So moving on to chapter 9 of the book of Mark, there's a section called The Healing of a Boy with an Unclean Spirit. So there's a big crowd around Jesus, and a man in the crowd speaks up and says, I brought my son to you. He's possessed by a spirit which makes him speechless. I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they failed. So again, Jesus is trying to give someone the power to talk again. And Jesus' response is interesting. He says, what an unbelieving and perverse generation. How long shall I be with you? How long must I endure you? Bring him to me. So even as he's healing people, he's disgusted by them, and he's yearning for the end. It's an ordeal for him every minute to endure human beings. This reminds me of a line in Nietzsche, uh, I think in The Gay Science, that this, every interaction with human beings should give us a slight shudder. And we very much see this with Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, at least. So from beginning to end, it's been a burden for Jesus, and he's constantly disgusted and disappointed. 
Then comes an interesting little section in the Gospel of Mark called the denouncing of the scribes. And Jesus says, beware of the doctors of the law who love to walk up and down in long robes, receiving respectful greetings in the street and to have the chief seats in synagogues and places of honor at feasts. These are the men who eat up the property of widows while they say long prayers for appearance's sake, and they will receive the severest sentence, end quote. The severest sentence. This is the worst group of people for Jesus because they say long prayers and they use all these fancy words, but it's only for appearance. There's nothing behind the words. The empty words of the Pharisees and the lawyers and so on is the exact opposite of everything that Jesus stands for. And Socrates is basically nothing but empty words. He's all talk. And this is really Jesus's entire mission, to give a rebirth to language, a living word, not words that are just appearances. And this rebirth of language requires the power of silence, an authority that is self-evident, that doesn't need to be proven. And this brings us towards the end of our story, when Jesus gets to the Garden of Gethsemane. So he tells his disciples, sit here while I pray. And then he takes Peter and James and John, his three closest disciples, ahead with him, closer to the spot where he's going to pray. And he tells them, uh, my heart is ready to break with grief. Stop here and stay awake. So he reveals how sad he is, his inner torment. He only tells this to his three most trusted disciples. And then he goes forward a little more and he does his prayer and he comes back to his disciples and he finds that they're asleep. And he says, asleep, Simon, were you not able to keep awake for one hour? Stay awake, all of you. And then he goes back into the garden to pray again. And he's praying for his father, God, to to spare him so that he doesn't have to be tortured and killed. And so he returns to the garden and he prays and he comes back and he sees them asleep for the third time. He says, still sleeping, still taking your, your ease? Enough. The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed to sinful men. Up. Let us go forward. So... He was praying to God to spare him from death, but that he's, he's so disappointed by his closest friends who can't even stay awake while he's praying that that makes him basically want to die. So after being betrayed in this way by his closest friends who he told to stay awake and they couldn't even do that, that's the last straw and he's ready for death. So he goes from being afraid of death of praying to his father to spare him, to wanting it, because he's so disgusted and disappointed by his closest friends. And so his contempt of human beings in the Gospel of Mark is really the engine of everything. And for Nietzsche, of course, contempt is the greatest virtue. And so in a lot of ways, Jesus in the Gospel of Mark is the most Nietzschean. And during his whole period of ministry, Jesus had always been disgusted and disappointed by human beings in general, from his, from his first miracle on. But the closest ones, his disciples, who he selected as being the best, still let him down. And this is what he can't come back from. This makes him have no hope. And now he wants to die. And so then Jesus goes before the council of high priests, elders, and doctors of the law, the people who had always been his enemies and trying to get him. And so they finally have him. And Jesus is alone. Peter follows him at a, at a distance into the high priest's courtyard. And then Jesus goes ahead by himself. So even his closest friend, Peter, only accompanies him so far. And now Jesus is totally alone and he's totally silent. And the priests and the doctors of the law ask Jesus if he has an answer to the charges brought against him. And he just keeps silent and makes no reply because the charges are crazy and he's not going to dignify it with a response. And so this angers them even more. And so Peter is waiting outside the courtyard while this is happening. And one of the high priest's servants asks Peter who he is, if he has any connection to the criminal Jesus. 
And Peter says, no, I don't know that guy. And he says it, he's asked three times and he denies it three times. And this is Jesus's closest friend, his only real connection to human beings at this point. And even this is gone now. And so Jesus is totally disconnected from, hum- from human beings now. But he's also not God yet. So he's not a man and he's not really God. And so he's nothing. And nothing's more miserable than that. And so then Jesus gets brought before Pontius Pilate, who is the governor of the province of Judea and made all the big decisions about executing notorious criminals and so on. And Jesus makes no reply to Pilate bringing the charges against him. And everyone is astonished at how silent Jesus is. His silence makes everyone angry. And so he's tortured and then killed. And one interesting thing to note here is that Pontius Pilate isn't really that angry at Jesus. He's not really hell bent on killing him. He just kind of goes along with it. He doesn't really get it. And so Jesus and Socrates are often kind of jokingly referred to, as I mentioned at the beginning, as the first two victims of cancel culture. And I think we can sort of see that here. The real reason for the cancellation is kind of lost. It just sort of carries its own momentum and nobody really knows why it's happening. And so Jesus is totally abandoned and alone and he's killed for his silence. Socrates is not alone. He still has his friends. Socrates chooses to abandon his friends who are with him when he's drinking the hemlock before he drinks the hemlock. And they're saying, we can help you escape. But Socrates is like, no, I'd rather die. Jesus, on the other hand, is abandoned by his friends. And so that's why he wants to die. That's the difference. And the difference is that Jesus is killed for his silence. Socrates is killed for his words. And again, with this key difference, you see everything. Because Socrates is not reborn. He's not resurrected. He just dies. Dying for words is not a death that lives on. Jesus died for silence. And he was resurrected and reborn and lives forever, if you believe in Christianity, which I don't. So silence gives you this power over life that words never can. Words lead to death. Silence leads to life. And that's the difference between Socrates and Jesus. Okay, that's enough for today. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye.